Our scripture passage today comes from the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Hear God's holy and authoritative word. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affections of, Je- of Christ Jesus, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The grass withers and the flower fades. Amen. You may be seated. As we come to God's word... Like every week, we need his help. We need to have ears to hear what his word has for us today. So let us ask His for his help in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you sent your prophets and apostles, and most of all, your son, to reveal yourself to us. We thank you for preserving your word that we might read it and hear it and be changed by it. Lord, we need your spirit for this to truly have its effect in our lives. Would you grant us ears to hear and eyes to see what the spirit says today? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, as we begin a new sermon series, I have a few comments for you. First, if you have noticed, we are going back to the New Testament and our previous sermon series through Malachi was from the Old Testament and this year the plan is to continue to go back and forth. Part of that purpose is so that we can see the whole counsel of God, that it's not merely we are red letter Christians or New Testament Christians, but that all of God's word is applicable and helpful and instructive to us as his people. And so we'll have these shorter sermon series. We'll be in the book of Philippians for probably around eight weeks before heading back to the Old Testament. As I've been uh, in my preparation listening to other preachers through Philippians and Malachi, I've also been tuning in to other churches and different traditions, and I've been struck by how little the Bible is truly preached how few people just go through the text. It might seem very dull to us on a surface level, that we're just going to read through some passages and talk about why it mattered to the people who heard it and why it matters now, versus having catchy slogans and titles, even sermon titles, 
I am terrible at sermon titles, by the way, if you notice in our bulletins. But part of the facade that is often put out there in our modern day is that we need to make things more exciting, to make them more relevant. And one of our values here at Resurrection Church is that God's word alone, in its form that has been given to us, is one of the means through which God communicates his grace to us. We don't need to add any wrapping paper or bows to it. We need God's Spirit, of course, to enliven our hearts, to illuminate his word to us. But as we come to his word, we don't need sage advice from men. We need to hear what God says to his people And that's precisely what the Apostle Paul is doing in Philippians. If you've turned in your Bible to Philippians, if you're having a hard time finding it, it's after the book of Acts. You start to get into the epistles. It's Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians. If you're looking and you start to see those other books, you might have to go back. But I'd encourage you to turn there. I've encouraged you already to read through Philippians during this sermon series. It would only take you about 15 minutes to sit down and read through the whole thing in one sitting. You can do that once. You can do that each week. It will help you more and more to see the glory of the gospel as Paul interacts with this church that he has planted But before we get into Philippians, I want to give us a little bit of background about what's going on, how this church came about, what's Paul's relationship to the church in Philippi. So we're going to first turn back to Acts chapter 16. The book of Acts tells us about how Paul ended up going to Philippi. You see, the apostle Paul was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And so he spent most of his life traveling in what is often referred to as his uh, three missionary journeys, kind of going around the Mediterranean Sea to the Gentile nations, proclaiming Christ in the synagogues and in the marketplaces. And Philippi is one of those places. And it's the story in Acts chapter 16 that gives us the background of when this church was started, how Paul was called there, and his relationship to them. So Paul and Timothy are going and they're doing ministry in all these different cities. And we're told in chapter 16, verse 9, Paul has this vision. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. When Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail to Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia a Roman colony, and we remained in the city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the house of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. 
And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Paul had this miraculous vision to go to Macedonia. The Macedonian man was calling out to come and help us. And he went, and we don't know what Macedonia is nowadays, right? We just, these aren't things on our map. Philippi is located right near the Mediterranean Sea on the north side in what we would call Greece. It was a place where the gospel had never gone, where people were in need of hearing about Jesus Christ. Paul hears this call and he goes, likely here with Timothy as they go, and they go to Philippi to plant a church. And what that looked like for Paul as he had gone to all of these cities was to go and to spend years among the people. To preach to them, to teach them, to eventually install local leadership, elders and deacons who would continue on the ministry of the gospel. But as Paul comes to Philippi, he finds out there's not even enough Jewish people to have a synagogue. I believe the number would have been about ten in order for a synagogue to exist. Instead, they go seek out a place by the river where they expect that there are some Jewish people gathering together to pray. And that is where we see the woman Lydia. Lydia is a prominent character that uh, supported the ministry of Paul. We're told that she is a woman who creates purple linen, which would have been extravagant type of cloth in the first century. And she hears the gospel from the lips of the Apostle Paul, and she repents and places her trust in Christ and is baptized along with her whole household. And a church is beginning to be born in Philippi. Philippi is, as we're even told in this passage here, it's a significant city. It's often referred to as Little Rome, or we might say Little Rome, right? Uh, it's a choice piece of land at the bottom of some mountain ranges where there's fertile land where the Roman Empire has kind of put an outpost of its culture. So Paul had spent some time there. He had seen these miraculous acts as people had converted from either Judaism or pagan religions, which would have been common throughout the Roman Empire, and instead have become Christians. And throughout Paul's ministry, they have been supporters of him. As he moved on, once he had appointed elders and deacons, he had moved on and they had continued to support the work of the apostle. Certainly in their prayers, but also in their finances. And so some time has passed, likely about 10 to 12 years between when he had been there and now when he's writing this letter. And Paul is writing this letter as he has been under guard, appealing to Caesar for his due trial. And he is in a Roman prison. And he wants to write to the Philippians because in the midst of his imprisonment, he is being chained to two guards. This church in Philippi has heard about his plight. They, they are following, getting his newsletter updates, if you will. 
and they know the struggles he has had, and they send a gift. And the man who is bringing the gift nearly dies. We'll get to his story in a bit on the way. But he perseveres and makes his way to the Apostle Paul in prison, delivers the gift, and Paul writes this letter and sends him back with it. He is writing to express his joy, his thankfulness for their support. He is writing to warn them about the false teachers that are there, the different ways in which the church could potentially fall apart, the internal divisions that are taking place. But ultimately, as we look at the book of Philippians, compared to all of, all, all of Paul's other letters, there is a greater sense of his love individual personal connection to this church he knows them by name he cares about them so deeply and so he writes to them to encourage them to correct them to help them say thank you now the book of philippians is perhaps the most loaded book with Popular life verses. You will see them pretty much every week. Uh, we will hit on one or another. Most of those verses are okay to keep in their context. The one we see today won't be one that's often misquoted, but there are many that will come up that people have taken from this scenario. A man in prison writing to people who are under oppression and have you know, just trying to figure out how to survive and instead have placed it in a foreign context. So we'll deal with those as they come along. But we begin today in Paul's opening to the Philippians, verse 1. This would have been a typical uh, letter outline that you'd have this salutation at the beginning. And Paul's letters all kind of start the same type of way. But there's some unique attributes to this beginning. Verse 1 says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. We'll stop there for a second. Oftentimes as the letters are written, they are referred to as apostles. Right, those who have been sent by Christ, apostles of Christ. And when Paul is writing this letter, he's not writing it necessarily to people with a Jewish background and all of the, you know, perhaps Greek understanding of the Old Testament from the Septuagint, the translations that existed at that time. He's writing to Gentile people who speak Greek as their native language and live in a Roman society. And their mindset when they hear the word servant is the same word as slave. It is the lowest rung of society. People would often sell themselves into slavery to pay off debts in order to have a place to live. It certainly would have been the bottom tier of society. They were often sold to one another as people needed workers, they would be sold from one household to another. And as Paul and Timothy identify themselves, not as apostles, but as slaves, it would have perked their ears. Slaves. But not just slaves, slaves of Christ Jesus. See, the only way your debt would be paid off if you were a slave would be if somebody bought you or you paid it off on your own. 
Really, your life was dependent on who owned you or owned the debt over you, right? If you're just a, kind of an indentured servant, think of it that way. There are, no doubt, was masters that were more harsh, more unfair, certainly exploited the slaves of the day, and there hopefully were more benevolent masters over their slaves. And here we see that they have transferred their slavery to Christ Jesus the one who has bought them, who has paid for them, who, as we know, has taken upon himself their debt in full. They come not claiming any sort of superiority, but instead their subservient nature to Christ as their master. And they write to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, Sometimes we have words in our Christian world that often fall flat because we've created them to help package together a lot of information. And one of those is words like saints. Saints, of course, we don't have the Roman Catholic view as somebody who's, you know, extra holy in this life and therefore ought to be venerated and given some sort of title. Instead, it is this word that says holy ones. To the holy ones, those who have been made holy in Christ, who have been purified by his blood, who live in Philippi. He's writing to the whole church, all of those who are named among the saints, those who have been made holy by Christ, along with the overseers and deacons. Now, overseers is a word we don't often see much. Uh, it is the same word we get the word episcopal from. Oftentimes it's translated as bishop. But it's used interchangeably in the New Testament with the word that we uh, identify with as elder, presbyter, presbyterian. So the elders, the overseers, the, the bishops over the church, those, those people whom Paul trained and appointed, and the deacons of the church. Now, different churches have different polity and different understanding of how we ought to govern our church. It becomes very clear that some of them have not even considered the Bible's teaching on what the churches were all about. Right? We have these apostles like Paul and Timothy and Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter. They go to these places and they appoint leaders. They train leaders to be elders in the local churches and deacons to serve under them, waiting on the tables, as we see in Acts chapter 17, so that the elders can focus on the teaching ministry of the church. And this is one example of why we structure our church the way it is. We have elders and deacons, but ultimately Paul is writing to all the saints. And he writes saying, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. And Paul then goes into three things we're going to talk about. Thanksgiving, assurance, and growth. First, his uh, exhortation of thanksgiving, beginning in verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all, making my prayer with joy 
because of your partnership in the gospel from this day, from the first day until now. Paul is beginning his letter, as would have been custom, with a salutation and a thanksgiving. But it's not just some mere thanksgiving. What we are getting here is an insight into the heart and prayer of a pastor over a church. Of an apostle who started this church. Of a a man who knows these people. Who has invested his life. Who has been supported by them. Who has seen their faithfulness. Who has equipped them and taught them and encouraged them. He says, I thank my God in all of my burdens for you, always in every prayer of mine for you all. Making my prayer with joy. It was a joy. It was part of his essence as an apostle, as the one who had seen this church be birthed by the power of the Holy Spirit to joyfully remember them time and time again before the throne of grace. And he gives thanks because of their partnership in the gospel. Now, this word partnership is the same word that we use for fellowship. It's the Greek word koinonia. If you've ever heard a ministry called koinonia, it means fellowship. This relationship between uh, Christians together, God and his people. Because of your fellowship, your intimate relationship with me in the gospel. From the first day until now. Paul's tie to this church is he is, in many ways, a father. He has come and proclaimed Christ to them. And as they have repented and trusted in him, they have been united in that good news. And it didn't end as Paul ended his time in Philippi, but it continued on as he went to the next city. And he went to the next place, and he was imprisoned. They continued to support him, continued to be in fellowship with him, continued to labor alongside of him in prayer. And it has brought great joy to the apostle. Second, he wants to give them an assurance Indeed, the people in Philippi were facing many issues in their day, and I imagine they weren't very large at this point, and so they are the minority in terms of the religious and social structures that place. Those weirdos over there who don't believe in the pantheon of gods, they're not even Jews, they're just this weird new thing. And inside the church, there are divisions. We'll see about those in the weeks ahead. Individual people fighting with one another. Judaizers coming in, trying to pervert the gospel. There's likely economic pressure on them as well. And so he gives them this encouragement in verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Our first life verse, perhaps one you're familiar with. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Notice what this verse does not say. What it does not say is, I am sure of this, your good work will bring your completion at the day of Christ Jesus. No, what Paul points them to is to be reminded that God has been at work in their lives, that he had seen them turn from their sins. He had seen their faith. 
that God is at work. And that if God is at work, well, he will complete what he has started. And so their assurance, their hope is not to be placed in anything except God alone. The doctrine of assurance is one that is particularly important for us as believers. It was one of the central doctrines in the midst of the Protestant Reformation that really divided the church. See, at the time, there was no assurance. You couldn't really know whether or not God was happy with you, whether or not you had done enough good things. And so it began to be this uh, complex of economics and paying and merit where, well, if you're not sure, maybe you can come and visit this special place and earn some more merit. Or you can give to the building of this cathedral and you will gain some standing before God. But time and time again, what was placed before the people of God was a lack of assurance. You can't truly know. Do everything you can in this life to earn God's favor. When the reformers showed up, that was the opposite of the message they read in Scripture. It was that our assurance comes by the finished work of Christ. If we look to our own merit, our own ability, our own contributions, we will always be lacking assurance. And Paul picks that up here. Philippians chapter 1, verse 3, verse 6, sorry. He who began a good work, God who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion. You may be uncertain At the moment, you may not feel like you deserve it. Indeed, none of us truly do. And he assures them, God is at work. I'm confident of this. And he tells us a bit more about it. Verse 7. It's right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. For you are partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affections of Christ Jesus. It's proper for Paul to feel this way. I know he's an apostle, so he might have some special insight that we don't have in his heart. What Paul is communicating to the people is that he has seen God at work in such a profound way in and through this apostolic ministry. They are in his heart, his his inner being. We use language like this, uh, in my heart, because we are on the other side of romanticism. But when Paul was writing, that's not a thing you would write. As one uh, commentator said, they weren't writing like Valentines to each other. We didn't talk about our hearts in the same way in the first century. This is in the very core of all his being. He has seen God at work. And you are partakers with me of grace. Partakers there is that same word as partners in verse 5. Fellowship. Communion. Because you are partakers with me of the grace of God. The same thing that happened to Paul on the road 
miraculous vision has happened to them. They partake together. They are equals in Christ. And they have continued to labor alongside of him. So it's not merely that something had happened at this one moment that they're supposed to look back to, but that Paul has lived his life with them, has seen the work of God in their hearts, and he has continued to participate in this work of the kingdom together with them. While he's been in prison, while they've needed to defend the gospel, and Paul has this yearning in his heart, the same yearning of Christ Jesus. Certainly at the time, it would have been particularly helpful to hear these words. The man who had come to speak the truth of God to them. People like Lydia in the church, maybe doubting what had happened, where they had come to, not sure if they were doing enough. But this man of authority, a slave of Jesus Christ, an apostle, is reminding them of his love and his assurance that God is at work. That he has not left them. That there is no doubt in his mind about God's will for their lives. And so he offers this prayer, this prayer of growth, beginning in verse 9. This is my prayer. That you may, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Weak, doubting people. People left on their own in some ways. No doubt feeling like they're not sure they're on the right path. Needing encouragement. Probably facing a lot of material and social problems. Paul offers a particular prayer, and if you look throughout his letters, his prayers are all fairly similar. He doesn't pray that they would receive all of the material wealth that they need. He doesn't pray for their ailments and sicknesses. Indeed, those are things we ought to pray for. But the most important thing that Paul always prays for is that they may grow in their love and in their knowledge. In fact, the letter to the Ephesians, one of his prayers is that their mind might be able to more fully comprehend God's love for them. So much of our lives, so much of our circumstances, we often look around at all of the tangible things in our lives. And we want those things to be remedied. Some of them may make God show us grace and mercy and provide for us in our needs. But those aren't always 
given to us. Right? There might be a reason for us to have to suffer through some things. God might use those for his purpose in a way that doesn't bring us earthly comforts. So Paul prays, not for something that's theoretical, but for the thing that's so central for us that would allow us to thrive and grow and honor and praise God more despite any circumstances, well, whether good or bad, that we may love more and more. It's not that shocking if we think about all of the commandments of the Old Testament and all of the things we read throughout Scripture. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Our greatest need is a growth in love. And not just, you know, pithy emotional reactions to the moment, but love that is rooted in knowledge and discernment. Love that is rooted in knowledge of God, of Christ's redemptive act on our behalf. Knowledge of our participation in the gospel of grace, of our fellowship with Christ. Discernment of what is good, right, and true. There are many things in our life that can take away our momentary joy, but the joy Paul has here. He is writing from prison. He's been in prison for a long time. It's very precarious what's going to happen to him. And he is filled with joy and thanksgiving because he has grown in his love, his love for God, his love for this church, his love for the brothers. He has an intimate knowledge of God's love for him. He knows what is right and true. He is not prone to despair because, well, I don't know if I'm going to get out. I don't know if I'm going to be able to succeed anymore. He has lived his whole life of suffering for the sake of the gospel, rooted in the love of God for him, overflowing in his love for God's people. And this growth in knowledge, this growth in love and discernment allows us to approve what is excellent and allows us to become more and more purified, more and more blameless, more and more able to bear fruit that comes through Jesus Christ. Not only that, it is through this love, through this fruitful interaction, as we are growing in our understanding of Christ's work for us, all of these acts, all of the things the Philippians have done, their support they have sent, the prayers they make, through those very things, God is given glory and praise. We often live our lives for different reasons, different missions and motivations. Some of those are better than others. But ultimately, what we see here is that God's people are called to live for the glory and praise of God. We might fail in our business endeavors. Our families might fall apart. We might fail to love the way we ought to our neighbors. 
we should lament those failures and pray that God would help us to be faithful. But as we grow in our love for God and one another, as we understand more deeply the gospel, as we can discern what is good, right, and true, as we fumble along giving thanks and praise to God, it is through those things that he is most glorified, most praised, because it is he that is at work. Remember the assurance here. He is thankful for them, but he assures them it is God who is the one who is working these things in our lives. God is the one who can give us assurance, who can preserve us, who can bring us to completion, who can make us holy and make us those who have these things. This prayer shows us the heart of Paul. It shows us so much truth about what it means to belong to the church, what it means to grow. I don't know if you doubt your assurance of your salvation, if you're unsure about whether or not you will persevere ultimately to the end of the age, but even in your momentary crisis now, you may not feel like you are becoming more pure and blameless. And if we look to our own track record, our own evidences, we ought to doubt. But Paul, God's word, is calling the Philippians and he is calling us to look to him. To be reminded that it's he who has started this work in us. It is he that is working it out. It is he that will bring it to completion it is that through prayer, God will cause us to love, to grow in our knowledge and our discernment. Paul is going to get into a lot of more topics in this book. Some of it good, some of it hard to hear. But it's all being said by a pastor who planted a church. One who had authority over them. One whose heart is filled with love and thanksgiving. One who prays continually with joy. As we face difficulties in our lives, as we wrestle with assurance and perseverance and our own seeming lack of growth, may we be people of prayer. May we see the sacrifice of the Philippians in the weeks ahead and see that it is rooted in love. It is rooted in fellowship with God's kingdom. That we too participate in this same work. May God give us his grace to be people of prayer, people of love, people of knowledge and discernment, people who are partakers of grace, looking to Christ who has made us pure showed us his love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Christ shows us his love by coming and dying on a cross that we can be forgiven. That in him all things are yes and amen. That in our doubts we would look to the cross. When we need to know 
your love for us. Let us see Christ. Let us trust in him. Lord, grant to us hearts of prayer and joy that we might grow in love for you and for our brothers and sisters in your church. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.